So last night we had a karaoke party. What did you sing, Vex? <laughs> you can't. You don't, no, you're not gonna. No. What did you sing? What did you okay, do? Okay. So I had I had uh, four song, or excuse me, three songs in mind, and I I think I did, I think I did all three of them. What I were the three so. songs? No, I didn't do all three of them. So I did two of the three. I did uh, Nancy Sinatra's uh, "These Boots Are Made for Walking." Good. Crushed that i'll give you that one yeah uh and i did wait is there a video no but there's a video of the other one we'll we'll get to it um and i did leonard cohen's uh i'm your man fairly well i was gonna do it with another of our comrades she stepped out in the middle of it and Uh, somebody else joined Shout out to linda because she was loving that performance yeah 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 and so and then the third one that i was going to do unfortunately we couldn't do it because there was no uh, karaoke uh video available was the joke it was like the jokey song that we were gonna do uh because karaoke is fun folks it's it's jokes um and also some people are really what, what your voice what was the song some Rex? comrades are really good at what singing was, naomi's the really good uh <laughs> the song was the mercy seat by nick cave and the bad seeds and uh we didn't do that one well, didn't so you do a fourth song after that yeah I, I did uh spasmultic by skinny puppy and oh. also uh hacker by death grips <laughs> So you basically were the karaoke last night. Usually, when when we have karaoke nights, I'm uh-huh. carrying it because well, this is usually the party. I'm ma- I'm I make I'm I'm comfortable making a fool out of myself, uh, and, and a well, lot of people are right. shy. And I, John I, has given me a face because John sings. He was upset, but J- you what weren't feeling great. So I wasn't there last night. That's so you, true. But right. when we have karaoke, I I, I pitch in, and then right. you do the what? It's like the the ska dance. Almost. Skanking. I do a lot of different dances. I like the Scott dance. I do the James Brown dance. It's too. cool. So I remember last year, Folks, you and I. John's got moves. You He's and I moves. sung a duet well, together, I John. I can't dance. The reason why Stephanie are together is Stephanie has a uh, a, a BFA in dance. Damn. BFA. BFA. Like we used to real stu- moves. No, no, but we we used to like bring bring bars to a halt. Dang. Like dancing Damn, on the, dancing on the pool table and stuff. And <laughs> I'm not kidding. Well, you, actually, that's so bad for the felt. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of bar do you think I was in? <laughs> I recall oh last year, the time you were there, you and I uh, sung a duet, and it was Rage Against the Machines, <laughs> Killing in the Name. We've sung more than one duet. Oh, we, we absolutely we've sung have. someone that I don't even want to say that we sang. <laughs> well, we did Friday, I'm in Love. We did. That there, was pretty good. Oh, there's video of that. Vex and Will do awesome du- what is it? Duets. Will's like, no. Will, Will literally <laughs> turned aside from the microphone. You did a fine job in that song. Wait, wait, wait. Will turned aside from the microphone and literally like brushed his mustache with his fingernails. It was like, kind of like, nope. Yeah. And you know what? It, it, those nights are so <laughs> fantastic because, you know, sometimes you have new folks coming over and, you know, they can see that we're not these serious, you know, stone-faced uh, communists who are all like whatever. And sometimes there's, there's times where we need to be serious. But, you know, there ain't nothing wrong about making a fool about your, uh, of yourself, you know? I mean, we're. I'm pretty secure in that. Speak for yourself. Well, listen. <laughs> no, I'm just uh, kidding. Oh, you guys have been around me long enough. You know, I make a big a fool of myself. I'm not going to comment on that. What? I'll go up there and sing, crappy. I don't know what. What is that? Love Shack. Oh, uh, yeah, I can. Do, do we have it. a video of that? <laughs> I don't think we do. I'm but not going to sing right now. My point is, is that, you know, mm-hmm. and gradually mm-hmm. at the beginning mm-hmm. of the night, people, uh, you know, who who were kind of like, ooh, mousy or like didn't want to go upstage, were on stage singing. So that's always, for me, very nice to see when people overcome that anxiety of, oh, I'm around new people. I don't want to do this or that and the other and make a fool of myself. Nah, go for it. After two drinks. We're all friends After here. After three drinks. Or if you don't drink, you know. I, I didn't yeah. drink. No, there's plenty of people don't drink. I, may, I make a fool of myself without any alcohol. Episode uh, 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 59. Uh, 59. <laughs>
Welcome to Crashing the System Podcast. My name is Vex Humana. Hi, Vex. How's it going? And I'm joined by my co-host, John Beecham. I'm here. And I mean, I've said that before. That's right. Unoriginal. Un- Apologize. Mm. But then again, last episode, I did a robot voice, so that was pretty ridiculous. That that'll never happen again. And our engineer, Will. How's it going? It's going good. I still feel a little shame over the robot thing. Crashing the system is recorded <laughs> in Chicago's Albany Park neighborhood. You guys left it in. Home, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Home to one of the most diverse working class and immigrant communities in the U.S. Produced by Answer Chicago and the Chicago branch of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, we here at Crashing the System bring you progressive movement news, views, and analysis from a fighting, independent, political perspective. Thanks, Vex. Yeah, no worries. So on today's show, we have an interview with attorney Heather Benno about the wrongfully convicted and imprisoned Lamar Johnson. And in News and Views, we'll be talking about the Palestinian student who was sent back to Lebanon because of his friend's social media posts. We have the Amazon rainforest situation, and we have Brexit slash Boris Johnson. I hope you enjoy the show. But first, before we get into the meat and potatoes, we've got an editorial. And no meat. If you're a vegetarian or vegan, it's not meat. It's, it's just potatoes. Or so- soy or whatever or you eat. Yeah. But we have John Beecham with an editorial. Answer Chicago coordinator, John Beecham. Yeah, let's get that straight. All right. With well, an editorial. Or Kurt. Put whatever. some respect on my man's name. <laughs> <laughs> let's hit it. We are in hurricane season. When a hurricane approaches, we all have advance warning, usually a few days to a week. State governments and the federal government disseminate information and advise things like develop an evacuation plan, be prepared, get supplies, protect your home. Some government preparation is undertaken. Storm drains may be cleared, emergency workers may be put on alert, etc. But there is no fundamental coordination to protect life, property, and even infrastructure. There is no central planning for us in the time of need. Hurricanes are natural disasters that we have little control over. What we do have control over is how we respond to them. We also, by the way, can exponentially decrease the damaging effects of natural disasters by ending the drive to kill the planet and organizing ourselves in such a manner where we prioritize living symbiotically on the planet rather than prioritizing profit. Hurricanes are very powerful and can cause massive destruction and loss of life, but it is the man-made disasters after hurricanes that are usually the greater danger. Over 2,000 people died in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. Over 3,000 people died in the wake of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. Let's be clear. There is no reason for anywhere near that many people to have died. In socialist Cuba, a much poorer country than the United States, where they experience devastating hurricanes on a routine basis, they experience hardly any deaths. They undertake a thorough, government-organized evacuation of the hardest-hit areas, they evacuate your pets, your doctor travels with you, and much, much more. The U.S. government's unwillingness to coordinate evacuations during hurricanes and its unwillingness to provide adequate relief after hurricanes, despite having more than enough resources to do so, is criminal. It's mass murder. It's death by capitalism. 
What kind of society faces a natural disaster of mass destruction and says to its people, hey, here's some advice to survive. Do the best you can. We might be able to rescue you afterwards if you need it. We won't be able to help you rebuild, but maybe if you have insurance or apply for some assistance from the authorities, an insurance company or the government, two entities who don't want to in any way help you out financially will give you something. That kind of society, the one we live in, is sick. It's insane. It needs to be ended and replaced by a people-first society. Here's the real lesson we learn every time a hurricane or other natural disaster causes death and destruction. People, working in oppressed people, leap to each other's aid and rescue. It happens every single time. We rise to the occasion with our limited resources and we save life and property ourselves. People should be in charge. We will protect each other. A capitalist government cannot be relied upon for anything we need. It cannot be relied upon to protect our lives. Under the capitalist system, outside a tiny handful of extremely wealthy owners, no lives matter. Well, I say, workers' lives matter, poor people's lives matter, oppressed people's lives matter. We just need a system that makes our lives matter. It really is as simple as that. Crashing the system needs your support. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to the real resistance, then please go to patreon.com slash crashing the system and become a monthly patron. You can also donate on PayPal at answer at chicagoanswer.net and crashing the system podcast on GoFundMe. Every single penny you contribute will be used to crash this racist, sexist, homophobic system. And now it's time for news and views. So let's get it started, folks. Um, we actually have a report from our engineer, Will. Engineer, Will? <laughs> yeah, what's going on? This is um, quite... Hey, Will. Hey, what's up, John? Mm-hmm. Podcast. Yeah, we're, do- we're doing it. We're podcasting. Just you wait. Yeah. So now we have a story. 17-year-old Ishmael Ajawi. I'm, I'm fairly sure I got that name right. I think Please you forgive did. me if I did not. But... A 17-year-old man from Palestine who was living in Lebanon as a refugee, um, he scored at 14. He received one of the highest scores in Lebanon on his primary school exams, and he got a scholarship to Harvard, and he was on his way to Harvard. And federal agents at the, uh, you know, when he arrived at the airport, stopped him, searched his social media, and this uh, relates to a, a policy that Trump has put into effect where people that are immigrating to the United States or coming to the country have to submit their social media profiles for like the last five years or something. So they were looking through his social media and they saw posts that his friends had made that he had not interacted with. He had not shared, commented, liked, subscribed to, followed, any of that stuff. Right. No reposts, folks. And he, um, they held him responsible for his friends' posts, which were vaguely anti-american in some context or even just critical of the united yes. states as foreign policy but the the agents who were interrogating him for like five hours right. basically said you know this this is unacceptable that you would be friends with these people or that this would be in your feed and holding him accountable to these posts and he was like if you look at my post you know my posts i have not said anything political 
And so they revoked his visa and sent him back to Lebanon. There's, there's a lot there, Will. I mean, I think there's something to be said, you know, for that to happen really to anybody, but especially a, a Palestinian student, a 17-year-old, a teenager, on the way to such a prestigious um, university as Harvard. Supposedly prestigious, or prestigious in the minds of some. Sure. There's a lot of dumb ruling class students who go there. Oh, I, I, I don't doubt it. I, yes. I agree I, I with you, John. I'm sorry about saying the word dumb, but I'm not. <laughs> but yeah, he, he got... A scholarship to Harvard. Yeah. He had the support of the institution. He did really well in his elementary school exams. He had everything in order. He wasn't politically posting. This is if there is a quote unquote model candidate to come to the United States. I can't see it. Someone who else, like this kid was going to Harvard. Right. He's smart as heck. Well, like, the point that I wanted to make too, in reference to this this guy's uh, scholarship too, was you know I think the ruling class is sort of fearful of like an educated Palestinian. In the case of I'm thinking about Ahed Tamimi, you know what I mean, who mm-hmm. who yeah. served as such as uh, you know uh, an icon or whatever for standing up to an IDF soldier who was attacking uh, her family. Well, I think it's um, there's a couple things, but on that. It's like, does does the ruling actually it benefits the ruling class if they allow this Palestinian student to come to Harvard because they can say, look how cool we are, right? Sure, yeah, sure, totally. Sure. Do you know what I mean? So I don't think that the I don't think it's probably even a consensus among the media or the liberal establishment or the ruling class or the conservatives or anything to like actually not have this happen. It just shows what the, it just shows that we've gone, you know, just another step down the down the road down the road of white supremacy. Oh, yeah. Of, uh, of clamping down on, on democratic rights. I mean, even if he had posted something critical of United States policy or of the U.S. government, that's supposedly, that should be your right as a human being. Right. It, it should not, I mean, having critical thoughts. Are, are immigrants not protected under yeah. the First Amendment? And, and then the other thing is, and maybe you want to talk about this, well, you can just go ahead. I was going to say something about like having to show your social media and being barred on the basis of someone, something, someone came on your newsfeed. Well, I think what I would, crazy. I would further this a, a little bit. It's kind of like the ways, um, I wanted to relate this to the police and how they treat black people. Like they get to sure. be the judge, the executioner, you know, they, they're administering the law when they shouldn't be, that shouldn't be their duty. The same thing is happening with these border agents, with ICE, with the TSA, in some cases with, um, federal agents, for you know customs and enforcement yeah people just feel emboldened yeah they get to they feel like they have the right Right. to just do anything that they want yeah and take any action because they've just been emboldened and you know this is happening to so many more people yeah and it only comes to light in a case like this which it should and it's helpful that it does come to light but it's happening to so many more people um and it's so egregious and really if we're to be honest i mean nobody's really in the in the halls of power willing to or going to do anything and then unless we force them to about this situation not just this one person of course we care about immensely just like any other person sure who's being who's being oppressed but i mean again there's just thousands of tens of thousands of people this is happening to it's happening on a daily basis yeah wrong absolutely so moving on uh folks i'm pretty sure you've heard this passing week about the uh fires on the amazon forest in brazil um and you know there's been a lot of lot said in the media and there's been a lot unsaid in the media about the cause of such you know that this is like a natural sort of wildfire it's really hard for you know that to be natural because of the uh climate within the amazon and the uh 
really the people who are complicit in these fires um, mostly have gone uh, without any kind of a accountability process or, or anything like that. For instance, I mean, before he started his campaign or during his campaign, the fascist Bolsonaro had said that he was going to make moves in the direction of ousting a lot of indigenous communities from their homes. You yeah. know, he said it was kind of like that, that it was a racket, you know, that it was, it was not useful at all. Inhibiting growth. Inhibiting growth. And well, what we saw, this article here pulled up from Telesur, two landowners arrested for burning 5,000 hectares. And for those of you unfamiliar with what a hectare is, that's about the size of a soccer field. So imagine 5,000 soccer fields uh, burning. Um, and, and this is kind of uh, unheard of. It's, it's a rare case. But these two landowners were arrested for uh, really uh, hiring 50 people to set fire to 50,000 hectares um, and was also found holding their uh, workers in, in slavery-like conditions. They were locked away in some uh, uh, farm, uh, trapped in some farm. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot has been said about uh, the Amazon and, and different lifestyle changes that you can make to sort of benefit the environment because the Amazon is, is a b good source of air for a lot of humanity and, and houses a lot of different species. I'm not here to diss recycling. I'm not here to diss vegetarianism. But we should also look at how the United States is propping up Bolsonaro while simultaneously smearing uh, Evo Morales, which you had a point to make, Will, about Evo. I mean, just look at the differences. Um I mean, Bolsonaro was actively, like, rejecting aid for the Amazon, for like, the fires and stuff. And Morales was, like, I, you know, it's kind of a photo op, but also he was literally just out there fighting the fires. And, like, he well, ordered... Well, fighting fires is no joke. Uh, I know, I know. Even if it's and a photo op, you, you know, know how right? that stuff yeah, goes. Yeah, yeah. But what, you know, same thing. But um, he also ordered, what was it, the, the world's largest, like, air tanker to drop water on the fires. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he just commissioned that to happen. And he's declared like certain zones, like you can't touch them now. You can't develop there just because it's like a, a safe area for the Amazon. And it's just the difference in their attitudes towards these environmental catastrophes is it's very apparent. And you have to, you have to take a look at uh, which corner the United States is in. And it's not in, it's not in Bolivia's corner. No, they're propping up, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Bolsonaro. Well, you know, if this isn't, if this doesn't make it clear that the really big crises we're facing, environmental catastrophe and white supremacy in this case, you know what I mean? Yeah. Aren't linked, like, and in fact, inexorably linked, mm -hmm. inexorably linked, let me say that correctly. I think you can say it both ways. Uh, I don't know what it does. And, and this is all I'm gonna say. We need the type of movement that is thinking on an international scale, on a massive scale, about mass movements, ultimately socialist movements with a vision of another world that can unite all of these struggles and encourage the people to be thinking on this scale, that the fires in the Amazon are like your home is burning. Yeah. You know what I mean? That Bolsonaro is president of Brazil, is like a world leader with power, has power over you. And that must be smashed and destroyed. Um, literally, I, I said that's all I was going to say. That's all I'm going to say. I mean, that's the big takeaway. 
that you, we've got a lot of people coming into the movement. We've got to direct as many of those people as possible to be thinking big. I know we say it on this podcast all the time, but to be thinking about how much that you are listening right here as a worker, as, a, as an oppressed person, I don't care if you're from the middle class to or wherever you're from, you are capable, capable of being part of a powerful international movement to take power over our destiny. Yeah, I just, I mean, I wanted to further the point of how all of this is connected, just very, very briefly. Sure. Like, I mean, who is Bolsonaro's campaign manager? Steve Bannon. Yeah, so I mean, this sure. is, you can't escape it. Like, uh, you know, just well, the, the sort of like white supremacist tide will be exported if it exists somewhere. What would a country like the United States with such a genocidal history, you know, why would they be so uh, interested in something like, like this where there is an active genocide against the yeah. indigenous population, you know what I mean? Yeah, so it's, it's not it's not too strange to, to consider that, that the United States is uh, also complicit as Bolsonaro, or rather the United States government, not the or United States capitalists, not, you know, the citizens. But on that note, I mean, you know, Bolsonaro, Trump, and now Boris Johnson. Segway. Not Netanyahu. Nice. nice. You know, all I of like these it. players in this fascist, uh, this turgid passion play. Yeah. And John is going to uh, serve as our narrator here. So, John, go ahead. Oh, boy. Let me clear that was my, my best. <clears throat> that was my best segue. That was, that was a really you. good segue. Well, let me clear my throat and take a drink of water. <sighs> there you go. Because um, Boris Johnson is prime minister of the United Kingdom. That's true. Uh, and as many people may know, <clears throat> he suspended, or uh, he's he's uh, has suspended Parliament for I think it's like five weeks, starting um, early next month. Actually, early September. This will probably be coming out in early September until October, the beginning of October. Why this is significant right now is not that the Prime Minister, uh, the Prime Minister normally suspends Parliament, and it has to technically go through the Queen. But the Queen hasn't um, gone against a Prime Minister's order since like the 1830s. So basically, this is Boris Johnson. God, doing, they really have a Queen, huh? Yeah. Well, yes, they do. Boris Johnson doing what most Prime Ministers do, but doing at a time where we have the Brexit thing going on, uh, which is part of a larger phenomenon in Europe and the rest of the world of greater instability and greater conflict uh, within countries, even those that are considered to be stable democracies in Europe and the United States. Um, and so there, as we're recording, there are large demonstrations all over uh, Britain uh, in big cities uh, against what they're calling a coup. And really, uh, they are against Brexit demonstrations too. So uh, the big thing here is that we've never discussed Brexit um, and there's a reason for that. Uh, it's, you know, not happening in the United States. That's true. Um, but it's also, it's a very dynamic situation with a lot of fluidity. Uh, and the main questions are very interesting questions. Um, as proponents of Brexit, we have a lot of workers. That's true. We have a, even a lot of people who used to be Labor Party voters who have, in some ways, exited the Labor Party. You have a lot of racists. You have white supremacists. You have the British nationalists who are really kind of at the forefront of Brexit. Uh, you do have some leftists as well. You have some Lexiteers is what they're called, left uh, Brexit, Brexiteers or Lexiteers, like I said. And you do have some demagogues like Boris Johnson, some people on the Conservative Party, some right-wing elitist or capitalist. 
Uh, on the other side, you do have some workers as well. I mean, you have a large share of people of color who are for remaining in the European Union uh, because, you know, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, the people, a lot of the people who visibly want to leave the European Union are, are doing it on an anti-immigrant uh, basis. So you have a lot of immigrants in the United Kingdom that are for remaining. Um, you know, the question about Ireland, um, if, if the Brexit were to go through, especially with no deal and no solution about what to do with what is now an open border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, Northern Ireland being part of the United Kingdom and Ireland being uh, independent. If those countries are cut off, then you have the question of, um, you know, Ireland's independence coming back into play. Um, the thing that has made uh, a disunited Ireland uh, palatable for the majority of Irish people um, has been the fact that there has been an open border um, and that, that that has kind of kept the peace. Um, of course, it's not a long-term solution to Irish independence at all, but it has definitely kept things uh, in somewhat a more stable, like, quote-unquote, um, situation. So there's the question of that, uh, and that, that actually adds to the equation. Um, you have a lot of people in Scotland who are for um, uh, exiting as well and remaining. So we have a lot of different questions here, and that's one of the reasons why that are literally in play and very dynamic, and it's one of the reasons why we've never talked about it before. But, so there, are, but there are some main things, like the European Union, for example, right? The European Union is, is obviously, for us socialists, a device of the most powerful capitalists in Europe, especially based out of Germany, for increasing their profits and uh, increasing the exploitation of the working class, and especially the working class in the poorer European countries. So the European Union in and of itself is no way supportable. But the question about whether the European Union should remain intact or be separate is a different question about whether or not um, and, it's, and in some ways, it's become it's su supplanted the question about whether or not the capitalist system is viable. It's capitalism, European, the P European Union powers as a tool, of course, that has created the very situation in Europe where you have the instability, in part created by the economic crisis, but just created by the system itself, where you have the white, you have the you have the rise of white supremacy, fascism all over Europe again. You have the instability. You have the conflict. The conflict has come from the system itself. Now, in Britain, where this instability has led to a conflict over the European Union, and in a very narrow vote, the country decided almost three years ago to leave the European Union, but has not yet, because no one in the country, the capitalist the capitalist class or the working class has found a way out of the situation, right? I mean, I think this is actually like a very, very important point that nobody has found a way out of the situation. And as long as the question is about the European Union itself, right, there may not be a way out of, you know, something may happen, but what is, as long as it, the question is just about the European Union and not about capitalism itself, and we can't say, hey, you know, the question should be about capitalism and therefore, like, don't discuss the situation. But the whole reason why it's hard to have a take on it is because it has become about the European Union and it has not become about the underlying causes of the instability 
right? The immigration crisis, the crisis for working people in Britain, that is not so, that has that is not really solvable currently. And so Brexit has kind of like intervened in the situation, like a lot of things are intervening. You know, you have Donald Trump here. You know, there are lots of things that have exploded onto the, and you have Bernie Sanders. There are a lot of things that have exploded onto the scene based on the underlying conditions that have caused a greater problem for the system. But these things themselves, right, are kind of an intermediary phase in the struggle. The struggle must go, the struggle must go deeper than it has. And, and, and we can't, we literally, we're at a place where the, right now it's difficult, right, to, to determine exactly what could be done because we're not at a phase where the working class can actually assert itself. I mean, in a place like, you know, uh, could, could, the, could the working class use a situation like people wanting to leave Brexit to have an anti-racist movement that was also anti-European Union, Right. That's the re- that's one of the real questions right here. Th- that is obviously not happening right now. So we're obviously at a point where we have instability, and you have the right emerging, you have the left emerging, and you have the beginning of a conflict. And this is just the beginning of the conflict. Now I know this explanation may not be satisfactory to most people, but I think it does really sort of get at the heart of why it's uh, very difficult for us to have a sort of concrete thing saying, hey, pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit, right? And I think having a deeper analysis of some situations sometimes is actually the most appropriate thing we can do, right? And to, and to see exactly when and where um, at a certain point we can definitively, because we don't have to definitively say things about A or B or C issue, right? Especially if it's not possible for the working class in and of itself to assert itself um, definitively in a struggle. John, like we need to put like a stock applause sound because that was fantastic. I mean, you think that was th- all right? There's, there's not like a lot that Will or I can, or I'm speaking on Will's behalf, but uh, I agree. Uh, there's not that we can really much add to this. This is a really long, sprawling topic, and you know, that's it's next to impossible to encapsulate it in just you know a, a show that runs an hour long mostly. Um, but yeah, I think uh, if anybody else has anything to add, feel free. The floor is yours. Well, let me just say, no, go ahead. Well, no. I don't. I don't have anything. Okay. Well, let <laughs> you, me just you, say. Wait, wait, you went up to the mic to just say. No, nah. I shook. I shook my head. Okay. Let me just say, like Boris Johnson is Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and Donald Trump is President of the United States. I mean, you know, these, the, this, this in and itself cries out for the illegitimacy of these two systems that they would have those types of leaders. Do you know what I mean? Right. And, um, you know, if a hard Brexit happens, we shouldn't say we want, we have no stake in keeping European capitalism afloat. Right. Right. But that doesn't mean we don't feel, this is the crux of the thing, that doesn't mean we don't feel with European workers and oppressed people and immigrants if things become more unstable. Right. But like we didn't cause that. Right. We didn't cause the crisis. And it's not, it's actually, you know, not up for not not up to us to say European Union, you know. Well, European Union bad, Boris Johnson bad, Boris Johnson bad, Netanyahu bad, Bolsonaro bad, Donald Trump yeah. bad. Well, well, it points to the, news and views good. <laughs> That's right. not good. Okay, I'm done. And if there's anybody out there who wants to improve upon my analysis, I'm more than open to that. Yeah, hit us up in the dang DMs, folks. And what was that Twitter? 
at Crashing D System. And Crashing the System on Facebook. That's right. All right, folks. News and views. News and views. News and views. And now, a word from our producing organizations. Crashing the System is produced by Answer Chicago and the Chicago branch of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Answer Chicago is the local chapter of a national organization. Act now to stop war and end racism. That's dedicated to building a nationwide, independent, fighting mass movement for real change. You can follow Answer Chicago on Facebook and Twitter, or check out the website at AnswerChicago.org. The Party for Socialism and Liberation believes that socialism, the collective ownership of society's wealth and rational economic planning, is the solution to the environmental crisis, endless war, racism, and all of the evils of capitalism and class society. We believe that in order to achieve socialism, a society of equality and plenty, we must have a revolution. The old order of competition, alienation, and oppression must be replaced by a new world of cooperation, sharing, and real equality. We have branches all over the United States and many friends around the world. We are building a party of revolutionaries to help make the people's dreams of peace and prosperity a reality. We hope you join us, either as a member of the Party for Socialism and Liberation or as a friend in the struggle. You can follow PSL Chicago on Facebook and Twitter or our website at pslweb.org. And now on Crashing the System, we're joined by Heather Benno, an attorney and an alumnus of the Center of Wrongful Convictions at the Northwestern School of Law. Hey, Heather. Hi, John. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, it's good to have an old friend on, for sure. For sure. An old Chicago Chicago pal, comrade. Yeah, right on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Heather Heather started her, her whole uh, political... No, I'm just kidding. You are probably political before you, you we met you here in Chicago, but... Yeah, well, it's not too much of a stretch, though. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, you still have that 312. You got that 312 number. Exactly. (laughs) Good stuff. So, uh, well, enough of the joking around. We invited you on to talk about something pretty serious. Uh, There is a case in the St. Louis area, uh, actually in St. Louis, of someone. uh, The man's name is Lamar Johnson. He has been in prison for 24 years. And despite overwhelming, I mean, overwhelming evidence, I don't know if I've ever seen anything so overwhelming in one of these cases, that he is innocent of the murder that he was convicted of, a judge decided to not overturn the sentence and set him free. Just, uh, we're just incredulous, actually, even though, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to find us incredulous at something like this. But this just seems such a glaring injustice. We wanted to talk about this and talk about it with you. Yeah. So can you just fill us in? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're right. It is such a glaring injustice. And I think we should point out from the get-go that the judge who issued this order was originally appointed by a Democratic governor in Missouri. And in the order, um, basically denying Mr. Johnson any relief or relief in the form of a new trial or even a hearing on a new trial, um, she relied on the fact that he had been denied another form of protection called habeas corpus. And I just wanted to raise that because that was also effectively killed by the Democratic administration of Bill Clinton in the mid-90s with federal legislation. So it's so interesting to see the way that, you know, politics really interacts here. The judge that issued this order is an elected judge in Missouri. So it really, um, it it connects to the whole struggle against 
the politicization of of law enforcement, really the criminal injustice system in the United States that's built on racism. Yeah, I'm surprised and not surprised to hear that we're uh, singling out Democrats for being the purveyors of this injustice. Um, what, what what exactly what what are the things that um, have been found in this case that should exonerate uh, Mr. Johnson? So, in particular, there were three areas. I'm just going to start off by saying that this was a motion that the government brought. Right, right. So, normally... Um, well, can you stop right there? Because <laughs> this motion has been brought by the movement, right? Because the right. city, the, the sort of larger area has been forced by the uprising in Ferguson to try to do something about the so many racial injustices that, are, that go on in St. Louis in the quote-unquote justice system. So, this is something that... Um, the it's the city or the state I forget like is actually it's a process where they're looking at these wrongful convictions right yeah and and it was they claim now of course it's the city that's like taking pride in this but it, it, kind of taking credit rather than the movement but partnering with the Midwest Immigrant Rights Project um, Innocence Project I'm sorry to try to review all of the cases of perhaps. Um, wrongful convictions or wrongful prosecutions in St. Louis. And this was an incident where even the other, the other folks who admitted to having participated in the underlying murder took place in the mid-90s, um, they conceded that Mr. Johnson was not involved. Um, they signed affidavits saying that he was not involved. Um, not only that, but the government in its review found that the lead witness, the somebody who claimed to be an eyewitness, um, was paid off by the government. Right. So, in fact, the prosecutor in this case went back and looked at the track record of the detectives, and of course, um, the, the police department, you know, they're backing up the detectives 100%. So this is this is kind of as you said, it's the movement forcing the government actually to say we're, there was no basis. There certainly wasn't reason beyond a reasonable doubt that this guy was um, was guilty. And in fact, we believe that there was reasonable doubt, but more than that, we believe that he was actually innocent. Most states, including Illinois, have a law that allows a court to, when somebody has been shown to be actually innocent vacate the conviction and apparently this judge is claiming that in missouri that type of law doesn't exist yeah you know it's interesting because i've i went down to ferguson when the protests were happening a lot of people did uh down went down there quite frequently and it's pretty striking the way that in st louis um i mean it's this way everywhere but there's still sort of an old school no veneer racism that goes on there like it's just it's in your face it's very, I mean, people could say it's quote-unquote Southern still, where there's like just straight up, like in-your-face segregation. Um, you know, so I don't, I, I, and people might be, it's a Democrat or whatever, and people might be surprised by this, but in a way I'm not shocked just because I've been down there a number of times and I've interacted with St. Louis activists and in the area. Um, you know, the way the, the black people treated are treated in St. Louis and the area is, is, is just, it's, straight, it's just completely in your face. If anyone knows about what happened in Ferguson. So this is interesting because I I think we should, it's not interesting, it's beyond interesting, but we should point out that this is an indictment 
uh, and I, I know this is kind of hyperbolic, but it it is. It's a reminder. It's an indictment that the system really is racist. That it's really not set up to to help um, black people and other people of color out or to serve them with justice at all. It's actually set up to keep quote unquote black people in their place. I mean, what other reason can you think for not letting this person go? I mean, um, you know that beyond there's a beyond a shadow of a doubt here that that, that this person should not that that Mr. Johnson should not be in jail. Yeah, if 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 I don't. If I could just comment really quickly, I think that this shows something really major, and it's not only in Missouri. We know it to be true across the country that the jails are packed full of black and brown poor people, working people, and this judge was afraid of opening the floodgates. This judge was clearly um, cognizant, understood. The fact that there may be many, many other people who haven't filed their petitions based on innocence for more than 15 days after their conviction. And That's that a very good point. And that is the reason why she, she must have denied it. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good point because they're thinking about all the money it would take, the, the lawsuits that will be coming. Because certainly, if you, you don't have to go too far. If you, th- if you look at Chicago, Chicago has had you know, dozens of these cases and have had to pay out a lot of money and have been you know smeared in the the minds of a lot of, you know, the city of Chicago and a lot of the minds of people here in Chicago and around the country. And it's kind of set a precedence in a way, the movement here. So it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely, it looks like, it seems like it smells like just a um, calculated um, maneuver that's beyond even the judge, right? That's obviously the judge and judges do, they have connections with other parts of the state, other parts of the ruling class, and they must have been like, hey, this is a judge that was probably trustworthy amongst the, the, that part of the state. And they must have been like, hey, let's not go down this path. Let's not do it. And to see if they could get away with it. I think that there's one other perspective that I think is worth raising here. And that is the fact that these judges are elected. Not to say that appointed judges are amazing, but it does call into account the fact that this individual is relying on certain votes and they may be relying on, you know, racist partisan politics in order to support her own election campaign. And it doesn't matter if all logic tells you that in this case, the person is innocent. This judge may want to be the judge that's seen as tough on crime and, you know, not risking making the wrong decision for her constituents. Yeah. And it just shows also with the election of judges. I mean, it seems like a good thing. And in fact, maybe it's not a bad thing necessarily, but who pays attention to the elections for judges really, right? I mean, on purpose, it's like not, it's just like an obscure thing. Nobody knows the judges, right? Um, so really, it's part of an undemocratic process in a way of keeping a, 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 a layer of the state judges who are really like not beholden to the people. I mean, of course, it's possible for the people to voice their, uh, to raise their voices within the election and, you know, get rid of a judge or get rid of a state's attorney like people have across the country. But still, even in those cases, I mean, the, the, the way that the state operates, right, even with, even with Black Lives Matter shaking the foundations of society, it's still possible for a judge uh, to do something like this. I mean, I just, I actually just want to step back a second. And just say again, I mean, we've kind of said it, but just how outrageous this is that a judge in a country 
would actually not overturn this case? Like what could actually in any, any imaginable scenario in which you're talking about a just outcome, could that happen? I mean, it's just, uh, it's just, it's gross. Yeah, this this story actually brings to mind something that happened three years ago where a Tennessee man was uh, um, jailed for a crime he didn't commit, was in prison for 31 years, and, uh, you know, he was supposed to be compensated like a million dollars for this time, and he got $75. And Heather, you brought the example of like how, um, you know, people are still suffering from legislation that was enacted under the Clinton administration, the Clinton cl- uh, crime bill. That has not gone away. That has not dissipated. This is st- that is so- something that is still like materially affecting um, the majority uh, black and Latino communities. That's 100% true. And you can even see this in this case. This is what was so shocking that the courts of appeal in Missouri have found that there are situations in which somebody's actual innocence, I mean, this is so ivory tower, right? Like whether somebody's actual innocence should prevent them from being in prison for the rest of their life. So um, basically the courts have found that if the newly, there was a reason why the evidence could not have been discovered sooner. Like for example, the police were lying about it or hiding evidence or paying witnesses or having witnesses lie in court, all of which happened in this case, um, that under those circumstances, the deadline of 15 days should not begin until the person, the individual becomes aware of those wrongdoings. So there actually is legal precedent to say, even in a state like Missouri, where apparently the judge claims that there's no explicit law allowing her to... um, vacate the conviction, but that wow. the courts of appeal themselves have, have recognized that this stuff happens and that it should go back um, to the trial level. But the judge considered that argument and rejected it in this case. Whoa. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually amazing. And the question, why? Why did she reject that argument? Um, well, one, she found some technical, technical difference between those other cases um, and this case. And then secondly, she said, wait a minute, Mr. Johnson has had ample opportunity over the last, you know, over 20, 24 years or so to file a petition for habeas corpus. And in fact, he has filed those petitions numerous times and they've all been denied. That was the position of the government before, before the movement arose. So the judge is in fact using the negative case history and the bad changes in law that resulted from the Clinton administration to further condemn to further condemn Mr. Johnson. Wow. You know what? Let's say the judge's name. It's St. Louis Circuit Judge Elizabeth Hogan. I mean, she is coming close to actually, which is interesting for me to say, but actually breaking the law in order to keep... I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, from a practical extent, I'm looking at it that way, like breaking the law to keep uh, Mr. Johnson in jail. St. Louis peeps as someone out there. I mean, we should be like protesting or something. Absolutely. Well, Heather, thank you for joining us uh, on crashing the system. We appreciate your insights as an attorney. If there's any final words you'd like to close us out with, um, feel free. The floor is yours. Um, Just thanks to the movement for bringing this issue to the forefront and keep on fighting. Thanks so much, John and Beck for having me on. All right. Thank you, Heather. Thank you. Take care. That's it for this episode. Make sure to spread the word. Share, tweet, 
or subscribe to us on Patreon. Definitely subscribe to us on Patreon. Yeah, do that. Catch our podcast every week on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, 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 and Spreaker as well, and anywhere else podcasts are found. Join Answer Chicago and the Party for Socialism and Liberation. But even more than that, join the real resistance to this racist, billionaire-dominated system that would rather fund endless imperialist wars than feed the poor. Thanks for joining Crashing the System. My name is Will. Hey. Vex. Will. <laughs> Hi. You're, you're Vex. Yeah. John. Are you still listening? If you are, tweet me. Uh, John D. At John D. Beecham. Say I'm still, I was still listening or to episode 59. tweet us 59. At, at Crashing D. System. No, tweet me. <laughs> well, we may be done with this episode, but we are in no way done organizing to crash the system and build a better world from its ashes. Take care. Peace. Out.